AT said a lot of fancy things. This is what really matters to me. Um, I've been a disciple since 1990. Uh, it's been an amazing, amazing journey, and it's taken us all over the world. Um, I'm the dad of two amazing daughters, Hannah and Tacho, which you'll get to see in a minute. But I'm the papa of two granddaughters. And uh, you'll get to see that too in a minute. So those are the things that really matter, not all the letters after your name and all the credentials, right? Um, but I do have to say, it is so special to be here. Uh, we led the North Side region when there was a North Side region back in 1997, 98, 99. Uh, few of you were there. Any North Siders? Um, a couple North Siders, a few North Siders, okay. Uh, just such great memories. So it's a, it's a joy to be here with all of you. So thank you for letting me speak. I hope you're not in a hurry to go anywhere. There's no major game today, is there? No, great. Okay, good to know. Um, this is the family. This is the family two weeks ago. So uh, Hannah, many of you who knew Hannah, Hannah was born in DeKalb, Illinois. We then adopted Madeline from India. She was the first infant placed out of the Hope Orphanage in Ashran in India. And uh, we, she came in 1998 to our family. So my son-in-law is to my immediate left. Hannah and he have been married now for almost six years. And they have the two amazing little granddaughters, Ellie, who Hannah's holding. She's seven months old. She was named after my wife, Elizabeth. And then is Hannah. And Madeline's right there in the middle with her boyfriend, Cameron, who is clearly a head taller than her. And Beth there on the very far left, and that is our dog Jackson, who's now living with my daughter Madeline. Beth and I are empty nesters. It is a wonderful thing. I love my kids, but it's a wonderful thing. Um, I get teased by my friends in the academic community that I'm the only grandfather who shows pictures everywhere he goes. So this is little Eden and Ellie. Uh, they are really the joy the joy of our life, and I know you hear all the time, probably, but I'm going to say it as well. Grandparenting may be the only thing in life that's not overrated. It is just absolutely amazing. A.T. briefly shared our journey. You know, we, we had the, the joy and honor of serving in the ministry for 26 years. We went to South Africa, and uh, just what, that's where we went from Chicago. We went to South Africa. It was, it was an amazing experience. My kids went to high school there. We built relationships around, not only in Southern Africa, but we actually, the schools, can I correct AT publicly? Is that okay? Um, yes, he says okay. So we did develop a school in Southern Africa, but then we developed a school in Kenya for all the East African church leaders, and then we developed one in French-speaking West Africa. And so there was a lot of travel around the continent of Africa, and developing relationships in Africa was just a great joy. But in 2016... I crashed. I literally got off a plane coming back from Ghana, and I laid in bed for days. I couldn't open my email, couldn't unpack my suitcase. Um, I just told my wife, there's something broken. There's something really wrong. And I was given three months off to kind of catch my breath and did a lot of soul searching during that time and just felt like I'd entered this kind of wilderness period in my life and didn't really know where to turn and how to get help. So fortunately, you know, in the Western medicine world, we have doctors who prescribe medicine for depression. I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and ADHD. The ADHD didn't surprise anybody. 
Um, everybody knew that about me already. But the other two were new for me. I had never had challenges with my, with my mental health. And so I started medication. I started seeing a counselor. And I started doing, trying to figure out what does this mean and where, where do I need to go from here. And so during that time, I did a lot of thinking about what I wanted to do and going back to school. Because for me, study fills my soul. I'm just one of those weird, weird nerdy people who books help me. And so I went to school, and I had to resign from the ministry to do that because it was a full-time program. So I've actually been a student now for five years and three months full-time. And I kind of joke now, I was in a basement for five years. I haven't seen a lot of human beings, so please forgive me as I re-emerge into the real world. And, uh, but as A.T. said, I just did finish, and I'm super grateful for that. My dissertation was called Lost at Sea, How the Individual's Spiritual Journey in Times of Wilderness reveals the need for a reimagined church culture in evangelical Protestantism. That's a really fancy way of saying when people like me go through wilderness periods, how do we really think about nurturing them? That's really what I was doing my research on and the answers I've been trying to find over the last five years. Um, so I'm excited to share a few things with you today that I think will help that have come from my study and uh, I will be starting here in January working two jobs, but the main job that I'll be doing is working for the Disciples Center for Education. And this is a new nonprofit that we have formed to come alongside the ICOC churches to help advance education in our churches. And so we have five other students that we're putting in PhD programs. We've launched an academic journal. But my job's going to be coming and visiting churches and helping to develop teaching and curriculum and that's what I'm going to be doing. So I hope to see you a lot more over the next number of years. So what I want to talk about today is learning to walk in the dark. I want to talk about learning to walk in the dark. Darkness plays a critical role in our spiritual life. I don't mean darkness as evil or darkness as in hiding, I mean a mature and balanced understanding of the complexity of mature spirituality and the role that darkness plays in it. When we are young and idealistic, we tend to see the world in a strict dualism. I'll explain what that means. Two kind of ways that we categorize everything, good and evil. Church, the world, spirit, flesh, the sacred, the profane, or light, and dark. These strict boundaries and simple way of seeing the world are helpful and even necessary in the early stages of our spiritual life. And in this way, we tend towards what I call a solar spirituality, one that sees light always as good and dark always as bad. Even as I was in the fellowship before we started here today, I said, I'm going to talk about walking in the dark. And a sister says to me, I want to walk in the light. And I said, that's why we need today's sermon. It's biblical. And in the Bible, darkness is often bad news. But that's only part of the story. Let's begin to look at darkness in that dualistic way that we all are familiar with. And this will more just be reminders of that side of the story. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, darkness is communicated as the place of punishment, a place that displeases God. 
How about John chapter 3? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done through God. Here we have a very strong dualism. Light equals good. Dark equals bad. The light-dark metaphor here works to communicate the importance of authenticity and humility. John chapter 12. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Light here is offered as hopeful, the place where Jesus resides. And darkness in this context is for people who don't know Jesus. And then, of course, we have 1 John chapter 1 in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. In this example, people walking in darkness do not have a relationship with Jesus. And so in all these ways, the sister who spoke to me before church is absolutely right. Light equals good, dark equals bad. This light versus dark metaphor, we must remember this is a metaphor, works in these applications. But we often take it too far. We begin drawing conclusions about light and dark in other ways. In fact, we sometimes reverse engineer this. If something's not going right in our life, we start asking questions of ourselves and of God. What sin have I not brought into the light as if that's the problem? Or what have I done to bring on this darkness or suffering in my life? We can become like Job's friends, misapplying what the scriptures are actually communicating and overreaching. We have to remember that light and dark is a metaphor. Metaphors have profound ability to communicate deeper truths, but they all have limitations. And they're not meant to be taken literally. And sometimes a metaphor can mean one thing and then in an absolutely contradictory way can mean something completely different. For example, consider who is portrayed as a lion in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In this passage, the lion metaphor is applied to Satan. The implication is that Satan is a savage beast hunting for prey. And then, in absolutely complete contrast, we see Jesus as the lion. Hail, hail, lion of Judah. Revelation chapter 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So also, light and dark as a metaphor can and does take on different meanings in Scripture. While the simplistic and dualistic understanding of light and dark tends to work when we're spiritually young, it lacks the ability to speak to the problem of pain and suffering. 
disorientation and wilderness. A solar spirituality has its place. But as we experience more of the complexity of the life, we also need a lunar spirituality. Let me explain what I mean. Let's consider the other ways that darkness is used in the Bible. Let's talk first about how darkness creates a rhythm to life. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Such an important passage. On the fourth day of creation, we read this. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Day and night are created as different from one another, both important. These lights give us the ability to navigate both day and night. In other words, the day is illuminated by God and the night is illuminated by God. The lights separate day from night. Both day and night have their place and their purpose. Consider the implications of us as biological creatures. The day is active. The night is passive. In the day, it's about what we do. And at night, it's actually about what God does while we don't do. Right? Without the proper night, the day is rough. Have you ever had sleeping problems? You know what I'm talking about. The scripture says, let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times. There's a sacredness to the day. There's a sacredness to the night. How do you see that? When I think of night, think of seasons, rhythm, intimacy, relaxation, rest, recovery, restoration, communication, connection, friendship, pondering, thoughtfulness, mystery, and even the mystical. Consider how many times in the Bible dreams play a central role in the narrative. Let them serve as signs to mark the days and the years. These lights help us to count hours and days and months and years. We live by them, plant and harvest by them, structure our lives around them. Death, burial, and resurrection are tied up in this imagery. Newness, beginnings. We think of age or maturity. We think of development or a journey. We think of process and movement, seasons. Let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. The light produced creates very different experiences. Daylight and moonlight are quite different. Daylight is bright. Plants thrive. We can see clearly. We work. We sweat. We get sunburned. Some of us do. <laughs> moonlight is very different. It's dim. It's subtle. It creates ambiance, reflection. It's cozy. It's romantic. And the Bible says God made two great lights, the greater to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. Night and day are both governed by different sources. Sun is brilliant. You cannot look to it, and it brings life. The moon is mysterious and consistent and fickle. Sometimes it's bright, sometimes it's missing. Darkness 
is also where God speaks and casts visions. So many passages of Scripture talk about this intimacy and connecting with God in darkness. Genesis chapter 15, God took Abram outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Genesis chapter 15, a little later in the same passage, we see this image of the sun setting, darkness falling, and a smoking fire pot and blazing torch appearing and passing between the pieces. On that day, the Bible says the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Do you remember when the people were rescued out of Israel, out of Egypt and brought into the desert? They're sitting on the, mount, the, the uh, foot of the mountain, and there appears a dark cloud for Moses to go speak to the Lord. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, the people remained at a distance, but Moses approached the thick darkness. Get a load of this, where God was. Genesis 28, verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he named that place Bethel, house of God. Darkness is also where transformation happens. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jacob wrestling with the divine being in Genesis 32. I've done so much academic work on that, I, I just can't get enough of that passage. Here, this 97-year-old man finds himself in a wrestling match with a divine being that goes all night long. Now, let's ask the wrestler amongst us. <laughs> How long does it take to be completely exhausted in an all-out wrestling match? About how many minutes? One and a half. One and a half minutes. <laughs> and yet, we have this image of a 97-year-old man wrestling all night long with a divine being. Why? Because in darkness, when we wrestle with God, it always goes much longer than we think we can handle. But God is doing God's work in that space. And do you remember how he left? Limping and transformed. Yes, we leave darkness with a limp, but we also leave it different. God is present and governing both in day and night. We spend so much time talking about the day and how to live in it. But we have very few skills developed in navigating the night. This is why that I devoted my entire dissertation on wilderness or darkness. How do we think about this? How do we develop a map to navigate this, these dark times in our spiritual life? We all must learn to walk in the dark, which by nature consists of unknowing and mystery. How do we learn? We have to begin by accepting its reality. We have to stop trying to avoid it and get out of it. Because the truth is, we have no control over when we enter it and when God lets us leave it. We must be mature and stop being afraid of the dark, recognizing that spiritual maturity is the result of passing through those times, not running back out of them. In fact, if we think about it, we often don't trust people 
who have not spent time in their own wilderness or darkness. Over the years, as I've taught parenting and talked about working with people, um, it's interesting. One of my children grew up in kind of the traditional sense of she became a Christian as a teenager, and she went on and got, was in the ministry, and she's just kind of done that traditional path. And my other daughter has taken a different route. People want to talk about that one because we need to know. We want to know. How do we navigate the wilderness? I've had people tell me that there's certain leaders that they don't always trust because they haven't seen them go through darkness. We respect and admire people who we know have journeyed through difficult times. We find comfort and hope from them. Another way of looking at this idea is talking about spiritual light pollution. Scientists have studied the ill effect of too much light. There's a book where I took a lot of these concepts by Barbara Brown Taylor, and she says this in page 69. She writes, every time we turn on a light after dark, receptors in our eyes and skin send messages to our adrenal, pituitary, and pineal glands to stop what they're doing and get ready for a new day. Fluorescent lights and computer screens both both flicker on and off 60 to 120 cycles a second, which is enough to fool your brain to thinking that the sun is coming up. But even a light from a cell phone charger or a glow-in-the-dark clock can cue your body that morning is underway. When that happens, your adrenal gland starts pumping more adrenaline into your blood system to handle the stress of an ordinary day. This tells your pituitary gland to back off on the human growth hormone your body's using that was supposed to repair its muscles and bones at night. It signals your pineal gland to stop making melatonin, the hormone that regulates your sleep, that can only do it in the dark. No wonder sleep aids have their own section in the supermarket. Turning on your bedside lamp may get you safely to the bathroom and back, but it will also upset your body chemistry. So what does spiritual light pollution look like in the church? Too much hype. Too much having to be on all the time. We don't give ourselves time to restore, to be ourselves, to be authentic, to recover. We begin to define a spiritual person as someone who outwardly is always zealous instead of someone who's balanced and holistic. How does the concept of Sabbath fit into this discussion? Sabbath has often been misunderstood in our fellowship. Sabbath began at sundown. It's a time to restore and to rest and to reconnect. Sabbath embodies all the things that I've talked about here. It's not about eating candy and playing video games and watching lots of movies. It's also not a disciplinary time or a time of being put in time out by God. It works in the same way that night works. It creates seasons, rhythm, intimacy, relaxation, rest, recovery, restoration, communication, connection, friendship, intimacy, celebration, pondering, thoughtfulness, and mystery. The academic world actually does a better job than we often do as Christians. When every seven years an academic is encouraged to take an entire year to go rest, reflect, 
research, think, process, and write. Restore. Even our ministry sabbaticals have often been misunderstood and approached without real intention. A proper sabbatical is meant for those same reasons. One of the great spiritual masters in the, in the Christian tradition is famous for describing God in the darkness. And I've done a lot of work on this man. His name is John of the Cross. He was a 16th century discalced Carmelite monk. I know, that's fancy. He was trying to bring reform within his order. It was actually a movement of restoration, a reformation within Catholicism when Martin Luther and John Calvin were trying to reform outside. He was thrown into a dark jail cell by his brethren for months with very little to eat or drink. And when he came out, he wrote a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul and spent the rest of his life explaining the role that darkness plays in the spiritual life. He identifies two dark nights, the night of the senses and the night of the spirit. The dark night represents purgation or God purging us, God at work in us while we're passively allowing him to work. And I want to read to you just these two first uh, stanzas of the poem as we bring this in for a close. He says, one dark night, fired with love's urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen, my house being now all still. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house being now all still. What stands out in this poem is that John of the Cross recognizes that darkness is God in love, for love, placing us here to transform us. And he says, ah, the sheer grace. The first dark night was to remove that first fervor. It's a humbling process where we come to grips with our own mortality. The second dark night moves us towards a deeper faith and hope and love. In other words, God is working diligently in the darkness. John's favorite way of describing God in the darkness was the Spanish word nada. Does anyone know what nada means? Nothing. Nothing. In other words, we cannot describe God in his work in our life. It's ineffable. It's beyond description. We can say what he's not. We can clear the light pollution and experience God in the darkness. We feel it instinctually. We reach out for God in our dark times, don't we? Before modern technology, sailors had to navigate their ships by the stars. When the sun goes down and it's properly dark, you can really see the lights of the night. It gives you bearing. It orients you. The older I get, the more I feel the need to discern what the Holy Spirit is saying to me. I need those intimate moments and I take advantage of those rhythms. I rest, I slow down, starting at eight o'clock at night. I get up before the sun rises, usually at 4.30 or five in the morning, restored and ready to listen. I make a cup of coffee and engage God early every day, trying to navigate in the dark what God is saying to me. My challenge for us today is to embrace this kind of darkness in our life, not the other kind. 
to come to understand the role that it plays. Let's identify the ways that we find guidance in the dark, exploring the role of the moon and the other presences that assist us in this nighttime orientation. And let us accept that God does God's best work of transformation in our suffering, in our wilderness. And my guess is, if you think back at the last 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life, you have changed the most in those times of wilderness.